the only thing we can do to reverse global heating is to reduce the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We need to decarbonize our economy and we will. And all those companies that will help us with that will become the most valuable companies of the next decade. I think that's a low brainer. It's a low brainer for us also to invest already now in those companies who are founded in this decade to become the most valuable in the next decade. This is the Innovation Civilization Podcast, and I'm Wahid. My guest today sits in the heart of selecting, investing, and scaling up technology that would undo the effects of climate change. The whole idea being is to make the most sustainable outcome the most profitable outcome, and only then will it become the most probable outcome for humanity. Daniel Vishevich is the founding general partner at Europe's biggest dedicated climate tech venture capital fund called the World Fund. Our focus is to basically get the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere decreased. We focus on those startups that are able to save at least 100 megatons of CO2 or equivalent emissions per year. We also talked about the differences in investing in traditional venture-backed companies like SaaS software versus deep science climate tech companies, the ones that Daniel is doing. The value of death is longer for companies because you have hardware components, you have deep tech, and it's not a software e-commerce company where you can expect returns or a break even after year two, three, it takes a bit more time, but then the returns are higher. That's also proven. We also briefly talked about the political realm in fighting the climate crisis versus the entrepreneurial realm in fighting the climate as well. And Daniel's thoughts on that. We don't want our companies to be dependent on regulations. I know politics. I've been there. If you know what's happening on EU level right now, taxonomy, gas even being declared green. Companies and entrepreneurs have to be successful without being dependent on regulations. We also talked about what are the exact technologies that can help reverse the climate crises and the latest updates on where those technologies are in their maturity. It's when we put this filter on the technologies that they have to be able and have the potential to save at least 100 megatons per year, megatons of CO2 or equivalent uh, emissions, then you have like 60, 70 technologies into spaces that are relevant for us mm. to invest in energy and food agricultural land use. Energy consists also of construction, tech, so buildings, also consists of manufacturing or industry and transportation. That and much more coming right up on this episode episode. Thank you, Daniel, for being on the Innovation Civilization podcast. What a pleasure to have you here today. It's a pleasure for me, Wahid. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. At the start of every podcast episode, we want to know about the person who started the venture and a bit more about yourself. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself, your story, how you got into climate tech investing? I know you've got a very interesting background, so I would love to kind of dig deep into that. Yeah, thank you. Interesting background. I think it's uh, quite uncommon for a person like me to become a general partner in a uh, venture capital fund because most part of my business life was I was a journalist with a focus on venture capital and startups. Then after being a journalist, I was corresponsible for the, as we called it, audiovisual appearance of Angela Merkel, the German chancellor between 2012 and 2017. And basically only then in 2017, I started to work for VC. I did that before also in terms of consulting venture capital and startups. But in 2017, I started to work for Project A. It's a huge, very 
very successful BC company uh, mm -hmm. in Berlin before mm -hmm. starting the World Fund, what today is the biggest climate tech VC in Europe. Interesting. One of my cousins was talking about going to journalism and I was kind of dissuading him saying that, oh, you're going to limit your options. Today, everyone is a journalist. <laughs> yeah, definitely. If you can get into venture and actually help build companies that suck CO2 in from the atmosphere by being a journalist, that, that's a good one. <laughs> so let's get right to it. Can you tell us more about what you're doing right now in terms of World Fund? Can you tell yeah. us who you guys are, what you guys do, and yeah, give yeah. the updates? Yeah, our focus is basically what you have said to basically get the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere decreased. So we focus on those startups that are able to save at least 100 megatons of CO2 or equivalent emissions per year. While we are very much focusing on this indicator, as we call it CPP, the climate performance potential, is, is two reasons. The first reason is the only thing we can do to reverse global heating is to reduce the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And the second is we need to decarbonize our economy and we will, and all those companies that will help us with that will become the most valuable companies of the next decade. I think that's a low brainer. And uh, so it's a low brainer for us also to invest already now in those companies who are founded in this decade to become the most valuable in the next decade. So I think we'll achieve, I hope very much, that we'll achieve two things to make our investors happy in two ways with their money to, in a way, save life on earth or help to save it and to make them even richer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just, I mean, lots of stuff to unpack there, but let's start off with your first proposition, your investment thesis of investing in startups, which are like, did you say it saves 100 megatons uh, yes. per year? It's a yeah. million tons of CO2. Right. Okay. Fantastic. As I was kind of researching for this episode, I mean, I didn't know this, but it was quite interesting to me that apparently every single year we're putting out 60 gigatons of CO2 into yeah. the atmosphere every single year, right? Even if you guys achieve whatever you're trying to achieve, that's still going to be like a small part, right? So you need others to do and pull their weight. Is that correct? Yes, I'm happy uh, that you use this number, 60 gigatons, because it is 60. What's most times mentioned is those 40 gigatons of CO2 mm -hmm. and adding to that 10 gigatons of methane and, and right. other gases. But this was only recently discovered that in fact, it's 60 gigatons that humankind emits per year. I think it was a story by the Financial Times. Great research they have done right before the COP26. And, mm -hmm. and sorry, now the question uh, you asked, could you please repeat that? Yeah. So I was saying basically, if you're doing like 100 megatons and yeah. that's over what, a few decades, that's, right? Or, no, no, no. That's per year. So Per yeah. year. Oh, okay, cool. Fantastic. So if, if it's 100 megatons per year, but we're actually putting in 60 gigatons yeah, yeah, yeah. every yeah. single year. So it's, it's still a small proportion, right? That's true. But it's per investment and minimum. So Right. Our goal is to save two gigatons with investments we do or that the investments, the companies we invest in with our first fund and uh, we expect it to be around 35, 40 companies will invest that they will help us to save two gigatons of CO2 and equivalent emissions in the year 2040 per year at the latest. Yeah, so it's a fraction, but this is still a bold goal Yeah, uh, and it helps us very much to differentiate in what's climate tech and what's not because there's so many things out there describing itself as climate tech but if i'm allowed to name micromobility studies show that it's adding emissions and not saving micromobility 
is not climate tech. And if you look at the numbers and how many billions, how much capital is invested into climate tech, a huge chunk goes into that micromobility. And it's not climate sure. tech because it's not saving emissions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing this point. I was going to ask you this anyways, but how do you define climate tech versus clean tech? I know people use these buzzwords. Mm -hmm. They're put out there to do greenwashing and a lot of stuff. <laughs> so tell me, define for yeah. me what is exactly climate tech yeah. according to you. And then yeah. what do you think is wrong with those definitions for the media mm -hmm. who are yeah. basically causing this transportation as to be climate tech? There's no difference. So clean tech was the word that we've been using between 2006 and 2011. So there was a period of investments into clean mm -hmm. tech, the so-called clean tech 1.0 era. And those companies were mainly in energy. If you want to differentiate between those two words or descriptions, the description climate tech, I think it happened for two reasons. The one reason is it's not only energy, tech companies, what are clean tech or climate tech companies? Mm -hmm. It's also companies from the food, agriculture and land use space, the value sector. And another reason I could imagine is that we brought this new wording up, climate tech, is that clean tech was perceived as a failure, clean tech mm -hmm. 1.0. Yeah, uh, I think as Coastal Ventures way. and Climate Perkins lost a lot of money in that decade, basically. In the beginning. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but if you think about Tesla, Beyond Meat, QuantumScape, investments that have been done then. So if you combine those 25 billion US dollars of investments, then right. the companies that grew out of this money are valuable more than 1,000 billion US dollars today. So Incredible. that's definitely not a failure. It's just right. perceived because it needed more time to grow. So the value yeah. of death is longer for climate yeah. tech companies because you have hardware components, you have deep tech, and it's not a software e-commerce company where you can expect returns or a break even after a year or two mm. takes a bit more time. But then the returns are higher. That's also proven. Yeah, obviously, there's a lot of kind of failure in there, but the returns are higher, like you mentioned. So talk me through your fund mechanics here. So what check sizes are you guys putting? How much have you guys raised? How much equity do you take? What valuations are you seeing right now? Yeah, walk me through everything, basically. World Fund is raising 350 million euros. So that's our goal. We're still fundraising. And we exist already for two years, but only disclosed ourselves three months ago. Right. And why we only disclosed us three months ago is because we didn't want to communicate that we are building the biggest climate tech VC in Europe before having done a huge chunk of the work. Right. For Europe, for the American listeners, it's like 350 million euro fund. Come on, let's switch to another podcast. Boring. <laughs> in Europe, it's huge. Sure. Um, especially when you're focusing on climate tech. So we don't have the, the fund sizes as in the US and in climate tech, there's strong funds, but they are smaller and we have a huge gap. But I'll tell you a bit more about the gap mm -hmm. in, in European climate tech later. So we knew we need a big fund to fill this gap and we only can disclose it when we have really done something. And so we also knew that we need more time. So we uh, invented basically something what's called mm -hmm. pre-closing. And that happened mm -hmm. in October, right before we went out in public, because this pre-closing was mm -hmm. very well. So a bit more than half of the capital is already committed. And so then we knew, okay, this will not only be an idea, a bold plan, this will work out. Yeah, the official first closing will only be in April, end of April this year. And we started to invest. Yeah, that's also maybe a very, very important LPs want to see track record. My yeah. team and I, we have a very strong track record, was helping us to fundraise. But it's even better when you have a portfolio already. And that's what we built last year year we even 
have a significant upround now. I can't tell you too much about it, but it's right, also right. helping very much with the fundraising. Interesting. So in terms of the rounds that you participate in, is this like seed, pre-seed or? Yeah, it's from seed to series B. Okay. Initial ticket size is one to eight million okay. and reserve more than 60% of our capital for follow-on rounds to be able to go with the winners two more rounds. Right. Okay. That's amazing. And are you guys usually leading these rounds or kind of co-investing? Yes. Okay. yes. We, our goal is to lead every round and mm. to have board seats. What differentiates us also compared to other funds, especially in Europe, our investment team consists of people who have a scientific background. The team not only understands the business behind a startup mm -hmm. and company, mm -hmm. but also the tech. We have a chemical engineer, a mechanical engineer, a nuclear physicist, physicist, chemist, mathematician. That's what we learned. One of the reasons why European VC is too hesitant to invest in this huge investment opportunity of European climate tech. And uh, yeah, now we have the team to understand the tech uh, and we lead the rounds and traditional European VCs, we're very happy about that, are co-investing. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So this is a dedicated climate fund, like you mentioned, right? And the biggest one in Europe. Can you tell me about what do you think the advantages or the disadvantages of being a dedicated climate fund versus like a Sequoia or a SoftBank doing some of these investments really? Yeah, very good question. I would say one thing is what I just talked about. We have a team of scientists. I mean, if you compare us to Sequoia, etc., of course, it's hard to compare and to look better than those who mm -hmm. do their job for decades mm -hmm. and they do it mm -hmm. not only well, I mean, they're the best. So our difference is that we are in Europe and we've learned that especially compared to those traditional mm -hmm. US funds, mm -hmm. we win the deals because A, we understand the tech, B, we are in Europe, C, we have the deep pockets climate tech companies need mm -hmm. to follow the rounds. One very important thing, and maybe it's even the most important, those founders who are the best, they are purpose-driven. Those founders right. in climate tech who really built the most successful companies in climate tech so far and who are building it are those who are not only in it for the profit. They're also in it because they understand the climate crisis. If you understand mm -hmm. the climate crisis, you know that we are in deep trouble. And if you love humankind, you will dedicate your life to tackle this challenge. And those founders who are purpose-driven, they very fast understand if the investor they're talking with is mm -hmm. only in for the money or if he or she is really understanding what's driving you. Mm -hmm. And we are driven, yes, by financial returns, but we're also driven by the mission we are in. It's not only talking. I mean, yeah. I can tell you that we are, for example, also supported by Ecosia. Ecosia is a tree planting company, the biggest search engine in Europe. And they are our first investor with 10 million euros. It's a purpose company. So the founder of Ecosia, it's Christian and Tim. Tim is the co-founder of me in, in the World Fund. So this company is uh, valuable more than a billion and they made it a purpose company. Each owned 50% of it, mm. 500 million euros, and they made it purpose company. So it's they gave away this money. They're walking the talk. I'm talking, they're walking. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's fascinating to me. I did not truly understand the purpose of investing in climate tech before I started my research, basically, because I think if we want to make the most profitable outcome, also the most sustainable outcome, and also make it the more probable outcome, we probably need to invest in tech. It's too late, basically, in a lot of ways, the IPCC report and others basically mm -hmm. also talk about how actively we need to invest in tech and create new tech to undo some of the geoengineering we've done to the earth right? Tech is almost like a game changer when it comes to that. It can basically be a technological discontinuity. With the current kind of energy harvesting systems we have, it's just
just not possible. You know, we need better growth models. There are 3 billion plus people in China and India who are going to come out of poverty and they need energy. They ain't going to stay in poverty, you know, no matter how much you tell them. We do need ways to create sustainable energy. That's where I think tech is so fundamental to be a game changer. Yes, it is. We need to invest in everything. In my dream land, of course, I would love to invest only in green energy, only in mitigation tech. But I mean, climate crisis is severe and we also need to invest in adaptation. I'm not a friend of geoengineering, huge risks. We won't do this investments, I can clearly say. But I also know that research in this direction is very important because when the time has come and we really are in this deep trouble, even deeper, and this will happen. IPCC report, you just said it. There also you can read that we have no chance to reverse global warming until 2050. Global warming will continue until 2050. Questions only to which degree. Everything we can see, the floods, the fires, it will accelerate. So mm. if we act now, we only can improve the situation for the time after 2050. If we don't act now, catastrophe afterwards. We need to prepare for everything. We need to invest in mitigation. It's what we mainly do to reduce the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, or basically it's our founders and the entrepreneurs who do it. They are the heroes. We're only serving them and trying to direct as much capital as possible into their directions and try, mm. try to make their companies grow. But we also need all everything what you have said. That makes sense. Before we kind of move on to talk about your entrepreneurs and maybe the tech actually that you're investing in, let me quickly ask about the LPs that you're getting. Obviously, there's the Mr. Burns test that, you know, okay, if I'm investing in this company, is it because it's profitable or, or is it because it's sustainable, right? A lot of time I see LPs being quite interested in short-term IRRs of the fund and how it's going. And as a GP, you're almost under pressure to invest in SaaS just because it gives a bit of cool metrics in the short term. So are most of LPs okay with taking a longer term approach? Are you being very selective in terms of who you're taking as LP? So how do you manage that mm -hmm. expectation of short term yeah. profit versus the long term impact? Yeah, I love the Mr. Burns test. I love it because we also do it when investing. Invest in companies that will be successful even if we don't have an increasing carbon price. Got it. We don't want our companies to be dependent on regulations. I know politics. Mm -hmm. I've been there. I know if you know what's happening on EU level right now, taxonomy and gas even being declared green. Companies and entrepreneurs have to be successful without being dependent on regulations. But of course, we have to have this in, in mind. For example, we invested into Juicy Mark. Juicy Marbles is a company that is producing filet mignon deluxe meat without animals, purely plant-based. Right. And this product hitting the markets now is better, tastier, healthier, cheaper than animal-made filet mignon. That sounds they incredible. I never had it, but I yeah. should probably after this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. We tried it last year in April and they improved the, the receipt. My wife ate my piece of mignon uh, <laughs> because it was really, really good. So it has to be better than what's on the market. Only then, only Mr. Burns will, will buy it. And they also don't put vegan on it. It's, it's just a steak. Okay. Or another company is Coa. They produce cocoa, the cocoa bean in the lab. So the product is not a cocoa bean, but it's everything what you get from the cocoa bean and put mm -hmm. in the chocolate, they produce it. And it's also, again, cheaper, tastier, healthier, like compared to what there is on the market. Those huge companies that produce chocolate, 95% of cocoa used today is produced through cutting rainforests, planting cocoa trees in monoculture, mm -hmm. um, child labor. Those companies 
companies won't change that if they don't get an alternative that is cheaper, healthier, better than what they have. This is our approach. So Mr. Burns test, the second part of the answer is that we also within our portfolio have a mix and there's we have deep tech and hardware related investments, but also software investments. So we have some investments, investments where we take the return earlier and the others later. So basically we are hedging. That's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that especially in the US, you have huge climate tech growth VCs and PEs that only last year were announced at General Atlantic, Texas Pacific, Wellington from Toronto, KKR, I know will also disclose a fund soon. So it's only those four are close to 30 billion US dollars. So you see totally different mm -hmm. numbers the Americans work with. So we have enough funds that will buy our companies. I wish it would be also European VCs and growth funds. And so you see 350 million is nothing. Yeah, none of that makes sense. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for answering that question, really. So moving swiftly on, I think you touched on this already a bit. There's different kinds of technology that you can invest in to basically fulfill mm -hmm. your noble investment thesis, right? And I think you already mentioned some of the few, but can you talk about what are the kind of stuff you're seeing in hard tech and what are the kind of stuff you're seeing in software mm -hmm. that you're doing right now and how that fulfills your kind of investment thesis? Yeah, it's when we put this filter on the technologies that they have to be able and have the potential to save at least 100 megatons per year, megatons of CO2 or equivalent emissions, then you have like six 60, 70 technologies in two spaces that are relevant for us mm. to invest in. I can, by the way, recommend a book that already came out in 2017 that inspired us about Project Drawdown. More than 100 scientists have done research for three years, published this book, presenting the 100 solutions we need to invest in to reverse global warming or global heating, I think it's more appropriate. So it's the two spaces I'm talking about is energy and food agricultural land use. Energy consists also of construction, tech, so buildings, also con consists of manufacturing, or industry and transportation. What we are seeing a lot is companies who try to get farmers into regenerative uh, farming. So this is on the fallow sector, very interesting. Mm. What we see is a lot of precision fermentation, like juicy marbles and coa, and of course, cell ag agriculture. And uh, on the energy sector, we see a lot of research done in uh, batteries, a lot of research done in how to improve efficiency, a lot of efficiency in terms of heating. And then of course, a lot of research done how to improve electricity generation, and maybe a last field, of course, how can you connect what's producing energy? Because in future, it will be decentral with what's consuming. So those platforms in between. Right. Okay. So that's a lot of stuff in there. I noticed that you did not talk about, say, specifically carbon capture or like hydrogen. Is that something you guys are interested in? <laughs> yeah. Interesting that I didn't mention this. It has a lot to do with our goal to save as many emissions as possible before 2040, because now is the time we have to reduce. Later is too late if it's not already. So direct egg capture, those huge suck CO2 out of the air machines will only make a significant difference after 2040. It's interesting. Comparably difficult. Yeah, it's comparably expensive and energy. It's take a while to mature and cost definitely, down. Definitely. Okay. So in 2050, I'm pretty sure we'll be super happy that guys already in this decade have done the research and done the investments. But if you have alternatives and there's other stuff like algaes, algaes can uh, capture for much lower price, more carbon, much, much more for a lower price or regenerative farming or also regenerative forestry. So you have many alternatives before you really need to suck carbon out of the air. Then hydrogen, another thing 
something definitely will also be relevant, but will only make a difference after 2040. And hydrogen, I can also tell you that, I mean, it will be huge, but it will need decades to come. And here I can also tell you through the political background I have, it's definitely something what was lobbied by gas industry because it's given them an opportunity to keep their mm. stuff going mm. with the promise we'll turn this into hydrogen. And yeah, you can see it also on the European level that this is working out. Gas will be declared green because it's basically something that is enabling hydrogen in future. So I really have mixed feelings towards hydrogen. That's interesting. Would you say if there was some kind of radical innovation done in carbon capture and hydrogen, which can basically reduce the timelines from like 2040, like you're saying to before, are you seeing yeah. something like that? Or is there a possibility or not really? Yeah, I'll tell you something what I really think will be leaps. I think if we progress in quantum computing, this will have a huge impact on material science. This will have a huge impact on achieving hydrogen earlier where we need it. So this would catapult. In, in Germany, we say this will be a quantensprung, like a quantum jump. This will really right. help us to save maybe a decade or two and get uh, much faster to those goals. So we're right now also looking at, a lot at quantum computing. Just for our listeners, can you relate that? Like, what is the use case of quantum computing and hydrogen exactly? Maybe it's for me easier to do it on battery levels. So you have to do a lot of work in the lab and tests when you try to get the perfect composition of batteries. And if you have a computer that is able to replicate basically the real world and to make a calculation instead of having you to do the test and test and test, it will save time, a lot right. of time mm -hmm. and a lot of energy. Yeah. Right, right. So it's like a lot of simulations done at a large scale with lots of variables yeah. and lots of data yes. you're talking about, right? Yeah. But to be honest, I'm an economist. My team is here smarter. I told you uh, yeah. that their scientific background, I'm learning every day from them. So if you want me to go deeper here, yeah. I know that, that sure, others sure. are much, I'm, I'm just a learner. Yeah, no, no. And I think that's important as well to translate some of these stuff for the mass public as well, right? And you guys are doing that a lot through your work, which is really great. So coming back to Europe, you mentioned about your being a bit behind. So it's like behind the US and China in terms of number of and, and size of investment in climate tech. Yeah. And you guys decided to concentrate on Europe. So why Europe? Why is Europe special when it comes to climate tech? So tell me, tell me more about it. Yeah, Europe is investing most capital into climate tech R&D, has most climate tech companies and least funding. That's why Europe. In, in Europe, we, we have the Horizon Europe program on European Union level. 33.4 billion euros will be invested solely into climate tech until 2027. We have done already since 2014, another 58 billion euros have been invested on European Union level into climate tech R&D. Adding to that, hundreds of billion euros from national budgets, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, investing into climate tech R&D. This results into two things. Around a third of the institutions and universities relevant for climate tech are European. 28% of all climate tech patent applications come from Europe. If you compare the number of energy companies founded in Europe in the year 2020, it's 353 in Europe, 250 around in America. If you look closer at the battery sector, it's 100 three companies founded between 2019 and 21 in Europe and China and US combined it's 80. So we are leading in R&D, climate tech R&D. We are leading in climate tech companies, but we lack funding. And that's honestly, I'm talking every day to founders, climate tech, brilliant teams, brilliant tech. And most time I have to say, sorry, we have to decide for, I mean, since our PR launch, we had 1,100 applications and it was in Incredible. October. Within three months, 1,100 mainly European climate tech 
founders reach out, apply, go really through a process. Of course, we have to tell, I mean, we can make only 40 investments with this fund. I'm getting emotional because, I mean, it's not a missed opportunity for profit. It's a missed opportunity for humankind. It, it won't be missed. I mean, luckily, we have Americans, Chinese investors coming over and some European funds are also waking up. Mm -hmm. I hope it's not too late. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. It's very interesting to me. So I love reading about history. You know, it's very interesting to me that the whole kind of thing about greenhouse gas emissions started in Europe in the late 1800s, right? Mm -hmm. With the first industrial mm -hmm. revolution and the starting of the industry and getting lots of people out of poverty through the mechanized working and through industry, basically the use of fossil fuels. It's very interesting to me as well to see the same type of energy transition going on in the same continent again, after like roughly 150 years, but this time with cleaner energy, right? So yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to me to see that kind of trend, basically. It is interesting, but today, of course, we have many more transitions. If you what's all interfered, artificial intelligence, digitization, metaverse, blockchain, I mean, it's all coming together. Yeah, we're living in, in interesting times, and I'm pretty sure that this will even accelerate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. So I think you touched on this a bit, but in terms of climate tech, obviously, you said that, for example, when you did your kind of official PR launch, you had a lot of applications come in for funding. And most of these applications, would you say were pre-product or at a research stage? Or do you think they already had a bit of traction? So when you say seed investment in a mm -hmm. climate tech mm -hmm. um, company, is this like pre-product? I'm trying to understand this because obviously there is a case for funding research. That's your core research yeah. by yeah. universities, yeah. whatever. And then once you have a bit of like a liftoff, you get the escape velocity and that's when you come in. So yeah, what kind of seed state, when you say seed state, what kind of companies are we talking about and how yeah. much we invest in like pre-commercialization and pre-product? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's mainly two gaps. The one gap is the gap in seed stage when tech comes from lab and wants to get to market. Basically years of investments or years of R&D done and now less prototype. The second gap is when you really have shown that things work and you need to scale a series B basically stage and then you need 20 million or even more but then classical European VCs ask you for the traction what's your revenue what's your profit break even then of course you can't compete to software e-commerce companies or those quick commerce companies out there so those are the two gaps those 1100 applications we received uh, since mm -hmm. October it's across really all those stages and I can tell you it's hard to, to decline again it's maybe half of it you can recognize very fast okay it's not getting over the threshold of a thousand megatons but what do you do at the end with those 500 that you still where you see this potential yeah absolutely and in terms of world fund how do you guys help your portfolio companies mm -hmm. exactly what are you doing differently than other funds yeah of this adding value question so it's our team is now 12 people and with the final closing we expect us to grow to 25 nice my background is in communications and brand building so that's what i've done for a uh, hundred companies and vcs that's something that i apply to those funds of course i can't dedicate too much time but it's definitely something help our ventures with number one uh, number two is the political network i have if, if you have a strong network and sometimes hear about potential regulations and even in more detail earlier than others can also be helpful then tim and daria they've been awarded 
best investors in 2020, they have a huge network in terms of potential follow-on investors of talent. Craig is a physicist and, and chemist who can connect you also to talent that you need to grow. I think we are adding a lot, but we are also helping a lot. Uh, our founders is uh, the CPP. So uh, the methodology that we have developed okay. help them to even save more emissions, what will also turn into more financial return. So when you are really a founder who cares for profit and impact, and if you have an investor like us here, I think it gives you some authenticity. That's a lot of stuff to help founders with. So just exiting the technology questions in the next 30 years, what top three or top two technologies are you most excited about in terms of climate tech? Technology that I'm excited about. I already told you about quantum computing. Uh, right, okay. Very excited about. I'm excited about the decentralization of energy. I'm excited about it because I'm a fan of democracy. And so if you have a decentral energy system. Come on. You produce your energy. You can sell it. Everybody can sell it to everybody. That's participation. It's not one sells or two or three sell to, to many, but it's uh, all of us. When you say decentralization of energy, is there a precedent for this today that someone's doing really well, any country or any company? And if so, like what does it exactly look like? Can you tell me just for our listeners who are not familiar with this? Yeah, I can tell you about a company, Gridex, where we have been invested before World Fund and it, we sold it to E.ON, what's a utility in Germany. They have produced a platform that connects basically everything that produces energy with everything that consumes energy. You can also, you have a hardware component, you can either install it at home or in an office or wherever stuff comes in that consumes, that produces and consumes energy. I'm just excited about, uh, I, I know the guys, I know the, how, how purpose-driven uh, they are and what they've built, what other companies have tried to build and they've done it. Makes sense. So quantum computing as well as decentralized energy, what else? Maybe doesn't sound so sexy, but if we get our farming and our farmers worldwide to regenerative farming, then the ground will will take 11 gigatons of carbon. I mean, it's incredible. Even if the whole world, I think, turns to uh, regenerative farming, I really, you have to put it in the notes. It's even the sure. 60 gigatons you've been talking about. Only yeah. regenerative farming can save all the emissions we create as humans. So the 11 gigatons was, I think, only on European level. And that's exciting. If we just change the way we produce food, problem solved. Okay. And when you say regenerative farming, what does that exactly mean, sir? Mainly two things. No plugging and no fertilizers or less before civilization, earth or ground, uh, how do you call it? Humus, it's in, in German, uh, soil, topsoil. Sure. Not yeah. We only started to do that with civilization. And that's, by the way, also learning I only recently had. Humankind already before industrialization increased the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere before that. Oh, uh, you interesting. Can, you can Milankovic cycles, and so you can compare that there's some pattern and you can really see that the concentration of greenhouse gases, it has increased since civilization through plugging. Then we also started started uh, with industrialization to accelerate this using fertilizers and then all the carbon. Basically, we are killing the ground to grow food on it. On mm. that ground, food grows only through additions. It takes years. Again, I'm, I'm not a super expert uh, in this field, but if you get the ground to basically be what it is and you not only grow one plant, but maybe 19, there's this one movie, it's called um, Kiss the Ground. Love it. If you have not seen it, super cool, super interesting. Cool. Yeah, I think um, it's I've got my tonight sorted. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So 
soil by nature saves carbon, has carbon, but through the way we do agriculture, it loses it. If we only return to the agriculture or to the ground how it has been and grow more more on it, and, and it's not only like once you get the fruits and, and uh, what you have put in the ground, but you do it more times per year and you do 90 different sorts, but only one, then this can save all yeah. the carbon we emit. Are there any portfolio companies you have who are in the regenerative farming space or any examples of companies? We're looking and comparing right now everything and I'm sure that one of our next investments will be in this space because right. uh, it's so powerful but it's really difficult to get a business model. I mean in Europe and worldwide we have a system that is paying farmers a lot of money to do it wrong. So to get away from this subsidies you need to create incentives and that's really something some startups are really trying to, to achieve and we see some top stars pretty sure will do one investment very very soon here. Interesting. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing. I know the concept of okay monoculture is wrong or whatever but I haven't seen any startups actually think about regenerative farming at least myself but that's great to hear cool so shifting gears a little bit I know we mentioned a few times on policy making and a few times on the government and European Union and what have you so can you talk about the policy levers that you think can be flexed in order to help with this noble thesis that you have obviously entrepreneurs by themselves can't solve everything these are more like a nation state level stuff we're talking about, right? What do you think is the role of government and what kind of policies do you think should be introduced to help you with this? Carbon price would help a lot because we would internalize external costs. Sorry, I'm an economist and that's a really totally economist sentence. What I'm mm. saying is we have so many companies who do harm for free. The that's, negative that's externalities, right? Yes. I mean, companies who burn oil, gas and sell it for a very, very cheap price. So the real price of carbon, there was a study that came out three months ago. If you really include the costs also for the next generations, mm. it's 4,000 US dollars per ton. You know, we are wow. talking... We're happy that in Europe we are close to 100 euros per ton. And this is something many companies already complain that it's too expensive. And then we have also the, the biodiversity crisis, which we're not even talking about. I mean, if things go wrong here, then, then this deep trouble we are in, I think then it's over. So this would help a carbon price to really to have the real prices on what's destroying our planet. Subsidies, all those billions and trillions worldwide per year. Just just don't 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 subsidize oil and gas. Don't subsidize this kind of farming that is basically destroying us and the planet. I mean it's enough. Please just do nothing is better than puring into those killer machines billions and billions. Yeah, that makes sense really. The question of governments is always a tricky one. What's your opinion on the recently concluded COP? 26. It's something better than nothing. I have no hacked expectations. Let's not wait for politics. I mean, this example of Tesla, I love to repeat it. Tesla is changing the car industry. Tesla, it's not regulations, it's it's entrepreneurs who change the world. And that's also the reason why I turned from journalism and politics to an investor, because I see those who do are those who change, not those who talk. Entrepreneurs power. So they make a difference and then politics will comply. Yeah. And I guess the best results ideally is when your politics aligns with your kind of entrepreneurship, right? And I think even for Tesla, the first couple of years, they, they had government subsidies, you know, to this day, when I go to California, I see that if you have like an electric car, previously it was only Tesla, you can actually take the carpool lane, even if you're driving all alone. So it's almost incentivizing kind of electric cars. And I think a couple of other 
other countries in, in the eurozone are also going to start doing yeah, that right yeah that's of course you can see if, if politics has done right it can accelerate uh, us into the right direction I'm, I'm not don't wait that's what i say True. I'm, I'm always happy when things like this happen or in germany i'm also very proud that we subsidized wind and solar energy technically we developed a lot thanks to uh, subsidies that happened here but then we also stopped it in the last especially last five years we really stepped on the brake because some big companies didn't earn the money with the businesses they have been in and are still because of this competition that grew and yeah but now we're turning around again we have a new government i guess that's where tech is quite important to mature and get cheaper right because at the beginning you can rely on the government to subsidize the cost for you to make it equivalent to the fossil fuel alternatives but then again you need the tech to catch up in a way that it becomes cheaper to do renewables versus non-renewables right so that's always the case that you start off with policy tools which is subsidized but you do need the entrepreneurs to keep chugging along in the software the hardware layers to make it cheaper basically you don't need subsidies for innovation it's mm -hmm. again the entrepreneurs it's the brilliant humankind subsidies can be helpful and if they are invested right but at the same time you, you can see it can also destroy so at the end it's not subsidies that make the difference it's the brilliant minds and it's it's the brilliant humans those bold people who believe in something who are purpose-driven they make the change cool brilliant well i think with that we'll leave it as is i think we had a great session and we're running out of time as well daniel thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your opinions on this very very important topic and hope to have you again very very soon and all the best with your fun hoping to see some unicorns and decacorns in the next two decades great thank you very much wahid thank you brilliant Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.